This is the Westwards podcast, a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. Western Sydney is located on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gunungurra and Tharawal nations, and we acknowledge and offer our respects to all Indigenous people and to their Elders past, present and emerging. Opinions and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Westwards organisation. If you'd like to ask questions, offer feedback or simply learn more about what we do at Westwards, please visit westwards.com.au. All right, let's get on with the show. To the podcast from Westwards for today, Monday the 6th of July 2020. My name is James Roy, I'm a writer but I'm also in uh, my other life, I am program manager for Westwards for Blacktown and the Blue Mountains. It's my pleasure to bring you today's podcast. We've got a few things to look forward to, we've got a quote from Frida Kahlo who was born on this day in 1907, so today she would have been 113. We've also got a few glimpses to give you into some of the masterclasses we've been recording, some of the other projects we've been doing, and also reporting on the art auction that we, we recently ran as a, uh, as a fundraiser for Westwards. And in case you're wondering where last week's podcast went, that's my fault. I apologise for that. I was quite unwell and was unable to produce the podcast for last week, so... This is two weeks after the previous one, so if you're busily scrambling through your podcast uh, listing looking for last week's, you will not find it. It did not appear. But we're here today, so let's get on with it. On this podcast, we have something of a tradition of taking a quote by somebody who was born, usually, sometimes they've died on this day, but usually born on this day in history. And today we are talking about Frida Kahlo, who was born on this day in 1907. So she would have been 113 years old today had she survived past 1954, which was when she passed away. Frida Kahlo, if you don't know the name, you'll almost certainly know the face. She was a Mexican artist, mostly known for her self-portraits. And somebody uh, once asked her what her... Uh, what she thought the most important, the most beautiful part of the body was. And she said the most important part of the body was the brain. And she, But she said, of my face, I like the eyebrows and the eyes. And of course, it is her eyebrows that make her most recognisable. That and her incredibly vibrant painting. She's, uh, she had quite a, quite a unique style. And it turns out that that unique style came very much from the way her life had played. It's not a happy story. She was... Uh, she was born into a Mexican family, but at the age of six she contracted polio, and that made one of her legs shorter and thinner than the other. So she was bullied by her peers, and the disease isolated her for lengthy periods of time. And then when she was 18, she was involved in a bus accident, and in this accident uh, she suffered multiple fractures, she broke her foot, pelvis, collarbone, ribs, dislocated her shoulder, she nearly died and needed over 30 trips to the operating theatre. But during that recovery she started painting. But we'll come back to the painting in a minute because her family life was very sad. She, uh, she said that it was tense and lacked a love. 
And later on, when she got married, it was a turbulent marriage. She lost several children, including having a miscarriage that caused such a serious hemorrhage that she almost, in fact, lost her life. So let's talk about this marriage. She met and married a gentleman called Diego Rivera. Rivera was a notable figure in the Mexican Communist Party, but he was also one of Mexico's most successful artists. And he was very... And uh, when she met him, he, even though he was 20 years older than her, her mother was reluctant to bless the, the marriage, but her father thought it was a good idea because he felt that uh, because Frida couldn't support herself terribly well because she could, didn't have the ability to work, always needed uh, expensive medical care, that marriage to someone who was independently wealthy and powerful, such as Diego Rivera, was a good idea, despite the fact that he had quite a reputation for being a womanizer. Frida still loved him despite the womanizing, right up to the point where one of the women that he had an affair with was Frida's younger sister. And I'm no expert, but I suspect that'll bring most marriages to a crashing halt. So after the couple divorced, you'd think that Frida's life would get back on track, but uh, no, she can crack contracted gangrene and had her right leg amputated at the knee. It might not surprise you to learn that following this she suffered severe depression and became quite a heavy drinker. But she also found that her emotion could be best expressed through art and that was when she started painting. She managed to turn this excruciating pain that was physical, mental, emotional pain and turn it into a beautiful and vibrant art that really jumps out at you when you see it. It's unmistakable and there's such passion in it. And she is very much appreciated and celebrated all around the world. Now I've got a number of quotes from Frida Kahlo for you. A couple of them are fairly obvious kind of artist quotes like this one, I paint flowers so they will not die. Or my painting carries with it the message of pain. Or they thought I was a surrealist but I wasn't. I never painted dreams. I painted my own reality. She also had a bit of advice about, about life and pain. She said, at the end of the day, we can endure much more than we think we can. But I've got a couple here that are going to segue nicely into something we're going to talk about in a moment. And when I read them to you, know that you, might, you may listen to them and go, well, that seems weird. But bear with me. So the first one is this. Take a lover who looks at you like maybe you are a bourbon biscuit. It's nice, isn't it? And this one, only one mountain can know the core of another mountain. So we're going to come back to those in just a minute as a segue to the next thing we're going to talk about. But before we do that, take a moment to think about Frida Kahlo. And if there was ever anyone in, in the world who had an excuse to curl up in a ball and just go, it's all too hard, she would be pretty high on that list I think but she refused to do that she took her art and she did what artists do she took her pain and her experience and she balled it up and then she turned it into amazing art passion-filled art that still resonates with people today so happy birthday Frida Kahlo so I promised you a segue with those two quotes which were once again Take a lover who looks at you like maybe you are a bourbon biscuit. 
and the other one is only one mountain can know the core of another mountain. Now how am I going to segue that, you ask? Well, let me tell you. Michelle Rickaby used to be the producer at Westwards. She now works as a freelancer. And I asked her to talk to me about running writers groups and how you go about doing that because she runs a successful writers group here in the Blue Mountains. And we run writers groups at Westwards as well. Uh, and we'll talk about a couple of those in just a moment. But the reason I've chosen these two quotes is because of this. The first one, uh, let's deal with the second one first. Only one mountain can know the core of another mountain. And I, I take that to mean that as writers, the best people to help us understand what we can be doing better in our writing are other people who understand the process. I think it's really important as writers that we surround ourselves with people who understand what we need to hear from them, that understand what will help our writing most because they've been through it themselves. That doesn't mean that the advice that people offer you, the advice of people who are not writers is not useful, but those who understand the process. I think it's a little bit like having retired cricketers and football players as the commentators on their respective sports because they understand not just the way the game is played but what it takes to actually be successful at that. And I think writers are often the same. I think it's good to have other people around you who understand that. And that was one of the points that was made in our conversation. So Michelle talked about a number of things. She talked about how you get a group started. She talked about the process you use to workshop uh, the work that comes into the writers group and so on. So let's hear a little of what Michelle had to say. So what were some of the considerations you, and the reasoning behind setting this up? I, I think this is, you know, this has been, this is always an interesting part of doing a writers group or finding a, a writers group. And really when you're doing that, it's a, a lot about um, almost finding a tribe and finding somebody who you can safely share your work with or feel comfortable sharing your work with. And I, uh, it took me a little while, actually. I tried a few different writers group and didn't really necessarily gel and part of that was writing differently to the groups that you explore so the one that I've eventually landed with is actually one where we worked together um, at, a, at a writing workshop first of all. It was actually a Westwards writing workshop with the very fabulous Inez Baronet mm -hmm. and it was a whole pile of different writers. All of us were writing different things but in that, it was an intensive masterclass, so we worked together for two days. And in that, you begin to trust each other's voice. You get a sense of how other people write, what their, not only what their style is, but how they view writing and what inspires them and how they work. So we kind of gelled as a group. Do you think it's important that everyone be writing the same kind of stuff? No. Do you no. know what? And, and people will argue this with me, but I think if, you know... I think it's been really nice to work separately and have our own different styles and different things because on one level you're not competing so people feel safer about presenting their work in a way that they don't feel concerned it's either going to their idea will be stolen or they're not as good as somebody else in the group so by doing by writing differently um, you kind of uh, it, it allowed a certain safeness in it and equally it's 
it kind of allowed us to experiment, to open up to other genres that you know we might not have been working in. So in our group, there is a, a memoirist, there's a playwright, there are uh, a couple of poets, there's a picture book writer, um, and a, and a novelist working in our group. And I think everybody's different experience has kind of brought something to the party each time. Is there a, is there a difference in? Um level of, well, I don't want to say ability, but in, in level of development of writers amongst them? Is, is, is it important that everyone be... I mean, no. I guess what I'm saying is yeah. that, you know, I know that there are some very successful, very, you know, award-winning writers who still go to their regular writers group and, and, and sort of... Yeah. Do you think... What, what, how much consideration should be given when you're setting one of these up to the ability of the different members? Hmm. Within our group, it is fairly. It's it's the standard is fairly similar, but people are at different stages in their career. So we have um, a published. Everyone has been published, mm -hmm. but there are people who are more regularly published, and they're published in different fields. So what I think in that kind of arrangement is, you can actually bring somebody who is less experienced in, and they can gain something from that. I think if you have too many inexperienced people in a group, you kind of need some balance to help kind of push you forward. So you, you want a bar, really, and so I think it helps if somebody is, you know, if you're, if there's somebody in the group who's going further, who's a little bit higher, you've got something to kind of, I don't know, what, what are the, up to. So what are, the, um, what are the safeguards that you take then in terms of ensuring that, people don't get too ahead of themselves or don't run other people down. Are there, are there mm. rules of engagement that you set up at the beginning? Yeah, actually, yeah. And, and it's a good question because I think also within that you need to... I think there are great things about writers' groups and also dangers to them and they're, they're, they're same side, you know, of mm. the coin, if you like, in that um, you can... It's good to get feedback. I think it's really healthy to be able to get up and read your work because partly, um, sometimes simply reading something to a group, you can hear things that you are that when you are writing and you're in your own head, you don't hear them, you don't see them. You're kind of reading to yourself what you are expecting to write. But sometimes what's on the page is not what you are thinking you are writing. So when you read that out to a group or you have other trusted people reading for you, if there are any stumble points or if there are any points that trip up your reader, then it's something, um, it's something worth considering. And I find within our group, the rule is more this, that, you know, you would have... Having said that, the rules are not super tight. <laughs> <laughs> they're more, to, to quote Pirates of the Caribbean, they're more guidelines. They're right? guidelines, right. they're guidelines. And that was Michelle Rickaby talking about how to set up a writer's group, and you can find that podcast on our podcast channel, Mini Masterclasses, Westwards Mini Masterclasses. Now, you might be wondering why I still haven't talked about the other quote, and here's why. So that quote again was this. Take a lover who looks at you like maybe you are a bourbon biscuit. And the reason I thought of that in the context of this particular podcast is because when I asked Michelle the most important thing to keep in mind when you're choosing... Uh, people to invite to a writer's group or setting up a writer's group. I said, what is the main consideration? And she said, bring good biscuits. 
<laughs> so that became the title of the mini masterclass, Bring Good Biscuits, setting up a writer's group with Michelle Rickaby. So while we're talking about podcasts, let's talk about Mala Nunn, who recently uh, agreed to be recorded for a podcast on writing crime. Mala is a, an Australian African or African-Australian writer. She was born in uh, South Africa, in Swaziland, and she has also written a very good young adult novel called uh, When the Ground is Hard. But she's a crime writer. And so she was kind enough to share with me some of her tips to writing crime fiction. Genre fiction is always something that people ask about because uh, I guess it's perceived as being one of the um, genre, one of the kinds of writing that actually makes money is genre fiction. In Australia, we love our non-fiction and we love our crime fiction. We love our true crime fiction in particular. But Marlon Nunn has had a very successful career writing crime. And she was kind enough to share some of that with us in her podcast. So I've got a little snippet of that for you as well. Well, the one thing about genre is sometimes, not a lot of the time, but much of the time, the readers are quite happy with a sense of familiarity. Right. Right, because that's what makes the genre. The familiarity is not a bad thing. Mm. So what Prime Witness did, this is many, many years back, is she took... Um, the plant, the, the writer, took the hard-boiled male detective and switched it to a female. Brilliant, right? She weren't, you'd never seen, I'd never seen that before. And she's, she gives zero cares about what, what the, her male colleagues think. She was incredible. So, she, so you, there's all these ways you can play around with genre and, and actually keep some of those tropes in, in, in place because they're not necessarily bad. There's a reason why those things keep turning up is because people people like that. But uh, I personally have got to a point, so if I'm reading something and someone's crying into their whiskey, I'm more likely to go, ah, and I'm, I just don't need that anymore. I don't. I've seen it too many times. But but the genre tends to change with the time and the place and, and what you tend to, to write. So... If you read something and you, if you're reading through the genre and you're trying to get a, an understanding of how it works, so you read five or six crime books and you'll ask, you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't I like that crime book? And you'll find what you like and don't like. And if they're tropes you like, you know, you're an individual. Every writer's an individual. So you, what, you want, you, what you must not do is simply copy what you've read. You, you give it your spin. You're an individual. Think about things in and of yourself or your life that might make that more interesting or different. So that was Mala Nunn talking about crime writing and crime fiction. And so it's a fantastic uh, conversation. And that's also on our mini masterclass podcast channel. So check it out. So about a week ago, the end of our art auction arrived and uh, all these amazing illustrations and paintings from Australian children's picture book writers and illustrators uh, were auctioned off on an online auction and the good news is that we raised over $10,000 so we'd just like to express our thanks and gratitude to all of the artists and illustrators who very generously donated original artworks and very limited edition prints for Westwards. Uh, we will have a bit more of a report for you in the coming weeks but over ten thousand dollars was raised 
uh, from the generosity of the people who bid. Now, if you wanted to bid or you did bid and didn't win, but you'd still like to donate, you can still do that by going to the Westwards website, westwords.com.au, and you can donate there. We would really appreciate any help we can uh, we can receive because all the programs that we run all over Western Sydney uh, are only achievable because of the generosity of uh, grants that we apply for and people who donate uh, to us so that we can provide those services. So thank you to everyone who contributed, everyone who donated, everyone who bid on the auction. And uh, we'll have a bit more to tell you about that in the coming weeks. A little bit of news to uh, give you some information for some opportunities that uh, writers in Western Sydney might be keen to take advantage of. The first one I want to tell you about is the Blacktown Mayoral Creative Writing Prize. So this is open to anyone who lives in the Blacktown City region. Uh, there are a couple of categories. In fact, there are one, two, three, four age groups. So eight to 11, 12 to 14, 15 to 17, and adult, 18 years and older. And they can be poetry or short stories. And there is a theme that you have to uh, write to. And that theme is the whole world at home. So the little blurb on that is this. Home, it used to be where we came back to after work, after school, a place of family, a place for relaxation. But then 2020 happened, and suddenly the whole world was at home. And at least for a while, home was our entire world, as through our screens, we enter the homes and the worlds of strangers. So the whole world at home is a very open-ended kind of stim uh, stimulus for anyone to use who wants to contribute to this and enter this. And there is prize money attached. So... If you are eligible and you live in the Blacktown area, go to the Westwards website. All the entry details are right there. I'd also like to let you know about the Westwards Varuna Fellowship. Uh, this is open now, the applications. So they this is open to four emerging writers from diverse backgrounds in Western Sydney. And it's a six-day residency at Varuna. So Varuna is a beautiful writer's house in Katoomba. And joining them will be a living mentor who will be chosen in response to their uh, the kind of writing they're doing. Uh, and that mentorship is tailored to the people the people who apply, or the, or the winners and their work. And the residency will run from Monday the 19th to the 25th of October. And basically you turn up with your suitcase and everything is there. There's a mix of mentorship, private writing time and social time. And six nights accommodation at Varuna, including meals, and uh, the meals are really something. So the, those dates, the applications close in 10 days from today, so the 16th of July. So uh, go to our, web, our website for details of that. And the other one that is kind of related is the Pinarolo Children's Book Cottage Residency. Westwards Pinarolo Residency is a week in residence of Pinarolo, which is in Blackheath, and uh, Margaret Hamilton, who runs Pinarolo, she was our guest on the Mini Masterclass podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, applications from Western Sydney illustrators are encouraged, but not entirely, um, they don't, you're not precluded from entering if you're not from Western Sydney, but we do encourage applications from Western Sydney because we are, after all, westwards. And so your working environment includes art area and art working area facilities, phone and internet connection, and of course consultations and mentorship with Margaret Hamilton, 
who is a, a uh, long-standing professional publisher of picture books, has over 30 years experience in the industry. So please apply for that if you're an illustrator uh, and you would like to have some time to work on your, your next great project in the beautiful Blue Mountains under the tutelage of Margaret Hamilton. And our writers groups are starting to open up again. Now we have the LGBTQ plus writers group is actually meeting in person at the Westwood Centre in North Parramatta uh, under very strict social distancing guidelines. Also the after school creative writing classes for term three are now taking enrolments. And remember our creative, our programs such as this are eligible for the $100 creative kids voucher that school students in New South Wales receive. If you're an educator, we have lots of ways to help you as uh, you continue this incredible effort that you're putting in to help keep our children educated in a time of uh, isolation and, and quarantine and difficulty. So if, you if there's anything at all that we can do to help in terms of workshops or, uh, or online writers groups, we can help you there as well. Certainly we have uh, three of our fellows are about to finish their fellowships and they are putting together some pretty impressive online workshops that will be freely available to schools as well. The Westwards YouTube channel, Westwards Official, is what you need to type into the YouTube search bar, Westwards Official, is continually being updated with more and more product and the latest thing to go on is readings by Erin Goff. Erin Goff reads from her book Amelia Westlake and Erin is a Western Sydney writer uh, and a very fine young adult writer and her video is on there with her reading and we're going to have also in the next couple of days we will have some illustrating workshops on our YouTube channel for the holidays with Martin Chatterton. Now, if you don't know Martin Chatterton's work, you might have been living under a rock, but Martin not only writes crime and literary fiction, he also writes children's fiction, and he's an astonishingly clever illustrator and writer of graphic novels as well. And he has written several books for James Patterson as well. So he's a very fine writer, very experienced, and he has put together these three terrific uh, illustrating workshops, mini illustrating workshops that are on our Westwards YouTube channel. So check it out, Westwards Official. And finally, we have a project that we've been working on with the Sydney Living Museums. Now, Sydney Living Museums are a number of uh, venues and historical homes and so forth, exhibitions around Sydney. And one of those is the Rouse Hill estate. So Rouse Hill Estate is of course in Rouse Hill which is out uh, just on, to the west of Borkham Hills and Kellyville and uh, they're conducting something called a virtual family fair. So you can find this by going to our website of course and they commissioned us or asked us to commission somebody, a children's poet, to write a poem about something to do with Rouse Hill Estate and we approached someone called Harry Lang, who has done one of our podcasts in the past. Harry Lang's a terrific poet who writes for young people, and he agreed to write a poem about something in the Rouse Hill Estate, and he chose a magic lantern. A magic lantern, 
from what I can tell, is a projector, very early projector, which has been around for over 100 years. And so Harry was commissioned to write a poem, which I'll play for you in just a moment. But if you want to go to sydneylivingmuseums.com.au or to westwords.com.au, you will find the Virtual Family Fair, which is a holiday event. It's a free event. Uh, you can just, but you have to actually register to get in there. But then there's a whole bunch of activities there hosted by Justine Clark. So it's a terrific way to keep your kids occupied for a morning or so during the holidays. So here's Harry Lang reciting his poem, Magic Lantern. And uh, I will talk to you again in about a week's time. Uh, until then, if you have any questions, go to westwords.com.au. And as we always say, happy creating. Here's Harry Lang. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm the Rose Hill Magic Lantern. Just don't call me bro. I've been here 160 years, and I don't feel old. I don't feel the cold. I'm still young, because I've had so much fun. I was in Rouse Hill House before cars, before muesli bars, before takeaway and KFC and TV and mobile phones and ringtones. Fortnight means nothing to me. In the 1860s when I was bought, I was new technology, long before the movies. See, I do colour projections, and there weren't any screens back then. The adults would set me up, light my lamp, my oil lamp, Turned down the other lights, the children would go quiet. I made the wall grow white. And suddenly, nine feet wide, here's my first slide. The chromatrope. Psychedelic, hypnotic, kaleidoscopic colour to lose yourself in moving shapes to take you somewhere you've never been. How about that? I admit... I am a bit battered, a bit cracked. I've been dropped, I've been whacked. Some of my slides are shattered, but I still work, which is all that matters. So listen, and I'll tell you my full name. The Improved Phantasmagoria Lantern. Go on, roll it round on your tongue. Phantasmagoria. What does it mean? Lots of strange images, like the ones you get in dreams. Oh, here's one. It's the fish, the circling fish, not the dish fish, the whatever you wish fish, round the going round and round. Oh, oh, here's the man falling out of bed. Bang! Do it again, mate. Fall on your head. Oh! You could say I'm like an eye. I've seen so much history. I've lived in this old house, the Rouse house, for five generations. So much has happened. So many people have come and gone, been born and died, got rich and poor. But they kept everything, including me. Every piece of paper and bit of string and mirrors and glasses and chairs and curtains and carpets and paintings and beds and tables and stables and orchards and the summer house and horses and Morton Bay figs and me. And the thing you can't see or touch is the most important. Their laughter. They had theatrical performances, they had weddings and concerts and entertainments, and what did they love most of all? My show. The children would beg, Please, the magic lantern, please, the magic lantern, please, 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 please. And the lights would go down, and the kids would sit still. The brothers stopped annoying their sisters just for one second, and look, the acrobat and his wife. 
jumps onto his hand. Imagine a tiny lady standing in your hand. It's grand. Now, here's the man being shaved, old style with foam all over his face, and that razor's razor sharp, won't leave a trace. Quick, change the slide. Let's have fishing. Wait for it. It's coming, 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 coming, it's huge, it's a kettle, it's a clang bang metal of a metal river kettle. But almost my favourite, which I've seen two and a half million times, so good it's a crime, is man swallowing rat. I love that. Man swallows rat. What do you think? Do you like the show? Yes? No? Yes, of course you do. I'll tell you about another show. John Terry, one of the family, inspired by me and my projections, made his own multicoloured slides. He recorded sheep, dogs, geese, bells from this kitchen in 1967. He called it psychedelic music. It was cool because he broke the rules. Oh, I've just remembered. Here's one of my favourite shows with slides, and it's called John Gilpin's Ride. And here we go. First slide, please. John Gilpin and his family sitting down to afternoon tea. His wife says, a picnic would be nice. John, pray ride and fetch a large fruit slice. John Gilpin's up and almost ready when a little dog makes him unsteady. (laughs) And they're off. We have a bolting horse. John loses hat and wig, of course. So he stops at a random stranger's place, collects spare hat and wig in case. However, John Gilpin's horse is panicked when a donkey brays and by its manning. <laughs> His horse goes mad. Pigs are squealing. Someone thinks that he's been stealing. John Gilpin's lost his wig again. People calling, you're a highwayman. They're crapping whips and shouting. More dogs barking. This disastrous outing. Finally, John Gilpin's home, exhausted and with aching bones. And that's it, everyone. You've got to say the past is fun. And what do you think? Do you think I'm still magic? Would you watch me again? Go on. 